I think there's an element as well of almost sort of groupthink here that we all do it we all behave in a certain way and that drives behavior as well mm -hmm. so almost letting the letting the norms emerge letting the behavioral sort of trends develop in in the way that we want them to we'll just see naturally people do it how many you know how many organizations have you been into where you've seen people do things why are we doing it well we've always done it that way welcome back to the cold star project i'm your host jason canigan founder of this thing, Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement firm. And I'm here today with a very fun guy, Christopher Newman. He is uh, a space lawyer. And uh, you would think there aren't many of those, but I run into more and more of them all the time. In fact, I was <laughs> referred to you uh, by Michael, and I really appreciate that, Michael Listener. Um, I spent some time today, Chris, looking up where Northumbria and Sunderland were, and I found out uh, that it's about two-thirds of the way up the spine of England on your way That's to us. Uh, Scotland. On That's the, exactly us. <laughs> on the European side. Yeah. And I was like, ah, there it is. All right, because you're a professor of space law and policy at Northumbria University, and you got your PhD in constitutional and comparison law from the University of Sunderland, and so those two things are pretty close to each other. Yes, sir. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've seen the guests that you've had on. This is a great podcast. Really happy to be part of it. Well, thank you. I, I hope more people agree with you and listen to it and, and share it. And that's something that you can do, folks, is, uh, is share this thing and tell other people about it who might be interested. All right. So Michael Listener referred me to you. He said you're, you've been a great friend and really knowledgeable and all that. And uh, I take Michael really, really seriously, <laughs> as you kind of have to right, with his Absolutely. point of view. And I uh, got to know you and, and I was like, hey, you've got to be on here. And so what I thought we would talk about is something that uh, we have not covered yet on this show and in the space law field, which is environmental protection inside yeah. space law. And when you brought that up, when we were talking about Antarctica, I was like, huh? How's that going to work? Uh, so let's, let's begin with a couple of, I guess, scene setting questions here. Why should we care about environmental protection in space? After all, it's, it's out there. It's a great question. And I think part of the problem why we don't care is exactly as you said, we can't see it. It doesn't affect us. You know, it will only sort of impact us once we can see it. I mean, look, you only have to look at the discussions on climate change. We can see the change in the Earth's climate and still we're not troubled with that. So the space environment's gonna come a very poor second on that. However, one of the things that, as I've learned more about space and I've learned more about space operations, I've learned that space is a unique environment. It's, it's not anything we can really compare to on Earth. When we leave something there, it stays there. It's a perpetual sort of scar tissue of human activity. And what we need to start thinking of is the damage that we're doing to society. Mother Nature isn't going to come to our help up there. It's not, we're not going to see grass grow over things. It, it stays up there and it shows. And what we need to think about is not just now and not just 10 years' time, but 100, 1,000 years' time, however long it takes humanity to become a, you know, a, an interplanetary species, we need to think... Firstly, are we going to make sure that happens? Are we going to enable space to, to help us? Are we going to clean up the orbits that are being used? And B, also I think it's a cultural thing. You hear lots mentioned about norms and normative behavior. It's, one of the, it's, it's kind of the buzzword in space at the minute because we can't sign treaties, so we have to look at other ways of doing things, and that's you know pattern and behavior shaping. And if we're looking to explore outer space, one of the behaviors that I see replicating is... It's this notion that, that space is so big it can cope with our mess. Yeah, in places it can, 
but there's only a little bit that we can use at the minute. And I don't think it takes that much more expense and that much more effort to think about how we can use space more cleanly, more efficiently, so that our behaviors become that way inclined. I think it was, you know, they talk about the expression, you heard the expression, it's not rocket science. I'm going to give you something from brain surgery. Um, famous, famous brain surgeon, Henry Marsh, and, and his ethos throughout everything is, is, is do no harm. And that's where I think we should be looking at as a, as, as a species, looking to explore space. Do no harm. If, if, it takes a, you know, if it takes a little bit more effort to clean up space as we go, well, we clean up space as we go. Let that be our legacy as a species. Or let that be our legacy as this generation. Because we're never going to touch the Apollo generation, are we, for space excitement? We're never going to be able to touch the, the glamour of the early space race. So why don't our generation, why, the, why don't the legacy that we leave be one of an environmental ethos that underpins everything? That we don't look to, I'm not talking about preservation, I'm talking about just making sure that it's done, and I hate the buzzword, but I'm going to use it, sustainably. So that our needs are satisfied and so that future generations are satisfied as well. Okay, fantastic answer. So not necessarily national parks in space or no. nature preserves or something like that, but a mentality. And I think what's going on with the sudden realization, I've watched it happen over the last six or eight months in this space situational awareness field of, oh, we're going to put all these satellites in orbit. What do we do with all the husks of the the small sats, yeah. cube sats, when, when they die in five years or something, right? And that I think how they deal with that, how people deal with that, how we deal with that, I need to include myself in that. <laughs> I'm a part of that group, uh, is going to impact what you're talking about here and how we go forward. So, I think that's right. I mean, I think as well, I think we've, we've gone from the situation of, of being, you know, space babies, of taking the baby steps of just getting there. You know, I, I, I agree 60, 50, even 40 years ago, getting into space was a huge human endeavor. Well, we've moved past that now. We're talking about reusability as a serious concept, as a concept that's recognizable in, you know, as a car would be reusable and a plane would be reusable. We're talking about sensible reusability. And so I'm thinking, okay, then we need to adjust our, our mindsets. It can't be business as usual. It's not business as it was in 1960s or the 1970s because our usage and our behaviors in space have changed. So we need to just attenuate our mentality and as you rightly said, we're not talking about national parks in space. We're not talking about unlimited preservation. We're just talking about cleaning up after ourselves. Hmm. That <laughs> seems very reasonable, right? You walk into a trail, you pack the garbage out. So that's it. Let's talk about some capabilities here then. Let's get right into the, the chunkiness of space law here. Are there any capabilities that exist for inducing environmental protection to be included or executed in space law? I mean, how do you get these people and these nations to actually agree on something? Jason, if I had the answer to that, I would be earning a lot more money than I am now, let me tell you. Um, I think the thing is, there's a number of ways to, to get people to do things. There is the, the instruction. And that's basically what we have with space law at the at the minute. We had these the big space treaties that that were signed in the in the nineteen and sixties, the nineteen seventies. I always think the Outer Space Treaty is sort of the legal equivalent of the Saturn V. It was signed at the same time. It was you know the same sort of miracle of getting two superpowers who didn't agree on anything to agree on this. So there is that way to do it. There's the top down approach. We're telling you 
that we're going to do this and we're telling you that you have to do it too. That works when there's the, you know, the two-party hegemony and when you've got Russia and when you've got America, who can enforce it? We're now in a world and we're now in a, a space environment where there is just so many different users of space that that sort of top-down approach, I don't think is going to work anymore. We've seen, I mean, we, we kind of saw it. There was an attempt by the European Union to, to issue the Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activities. And that just fell flat because everybody said, well, who, who are you to tell us to do that? You know, new space powers were going, hang on, we want a piece of the pie. Old space powers were going, well, what are you got to do with this? And it just, it just didn't work. So there needs to be a different mindset. And I think there needs to be an approach of consensus building. We need to build a new consensus. It's always difficult when you're designing a law to think, well, actually, why are we doing this? What is the purpose? I've outlined the, the, the cleanliness of space, and that I think that's a, a legitimate argument. But I think it's not within the culture at the minute. It's not within the, the value system of space exploration. So it's going to be very difficult sell to make people sign up to it because it seems right. Because there are very few things that seem right in that sense. You know, free access to space, that seems right. So we've got that established. No nuclear weapons in space. Well, we've got that established as well. And that all happened because of the Outer Space Treaty. So I think that we, and I include us in this, and I think everybody in this, we need to start having the conversation about, okay, where do we go from here? If we are serious about real, you know, really exploring space as a commercial entity, really exploring the value of space. How are we going to get agreement on using space? Because it's in everybody's interests to have a stable operating environment where you put in these assets that you're spending a lot of money on, but they're not going to bash into each other. I don't believe any company wants that. I believe every company wants a stable environment where they make an investment, that investment goes into space, and it gives it works for the lifetime of the, of the asset. And so I think that's the approach we've got to take. But it kind of saps at the romance of space, doesn't it? It kind of, when we reduce it to that kind of interaction and when we reduce it to that kind of commercial transactionary process, we then start taking away from the, you know, what makes space special. So we've got a number of problems. We've got a, a, a situation where it's working okay at the minute. Now, I know that's kind of like walking across a really, really busy multi-lane highway and going, well, I haven't been knocked over yet, you know, and, and so we're working, to the, we're working to that kind of model at the minute. And what we generally find, sadly, is with lawmaking and with, you know, the, the, the way in which laws tend to come to force. I don't know if it's the same in, in other countries, but certainly in the UK, it tends to come from crisis or tragedy. And that's not a good place to make good laws, you know. Good laws tend to emerge after a mature policy discussion with all the stakeholders feeding in and we come with a balanced solution. What we don't want to be doing is having, you know, a, a discussion after various assets have collided with each other, the space environment's in an absolute mess and everyone's blaming everybody else. That doesn't lead to good lawmaking. And that's why I'm kind of banging the drum about this. Now, there's, you know, I'm not alone in this. I know there's a number of people who feel this way. And I think it's time to think, not from an environmental point of view, but from a business case point of view. How are we going to make sure that these assets that we're putting in low Earth orbit are going to stay up there and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be unmolested and they're not going to be troubled? How do we make sure that happens? What's the best way to do it? Now, I'm also going to come a cut across the discussion with another 
problem, I think, in that the monitoring of the space environment has been traditionally a military function. It's been kind of ballistic missile defense and, you know, it comes from that tradition. Now, we know what the military like. They classify everything. They put classified stickers on absolutely everything. And I think, again, from, from talking to the people who know this, from talking to the people who operate the satellite, the feeling is give us the data about the space environment and we'll make sound decisions about that. And I think that's right. I think, I think that's it. So rather than almost space traffic management, I think what we need is kind of coordination, data sharing, initiatives like that. And those are conversations that I really think we can have because we're having them across the world on all sorts of different areas. It's not just on space. We're talking about data sharing initiatives. So I think we need to look, almost think away from space and think about what's the problem. Well, the problem is data sharing. Great. Okay, we can manage that. We can deal with that. How do we how do we sort of progress that conversation? So kind of that's where I'm coming from at the minute. I think we need to look at what's the art of the possible. We're not going to get a big overarching treaty like we've got with the Outer Space Treaty. So let's look at what levers we can pull. Right on. Yes. Yeah. So deliberate, not reactive. <laughs> First key there. Second, uh, open source for data. I know I've been talking with uh, Dr. Marie Bajan and, and other folks about this approach. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a very strongly held idea and mm -hmm. uh, I like it. And I also believe that with the open source idea, instead of uh, space air traffic control type thing, right, a centralized sort of thing, if it, it distributes the responsibility around as well yeah. so that yeah. people naturally uh, take on that, that interest and that desire to do what's right and, and take care of things. So, so th th let's talk about that actually. How, how do you enforce this kind of thing? There's no space police. Nobody's gonna go over and pull over your satellite or something like that. What remedies are there for folks who feel wronged or uh, if hmm, it's not a victimless crime where everyone is victimized, I guess, by junk being strewn out all over the place and the offending party not cleaning it up? And this is the classic tail end to the regulatory conundrum. Okay, we can, we can build a system. We can build a system that we think will work. We can build a system that will really do what we need to do. But what happens if somebody doesn't want to play? What happens? How do you deal with the hostile actor? And when you're building a, a punitive system, a system of enforcement, you have to work to the most hostile actor that you can think of. That's how it has to work. And... This is why I think enforcement, again, isn't going to be the answer. This is why I don't think there's going to be an enforcement mechanism that we can pluck off the shelf from Earth. I don't think there's an enforcement mechanism that, that really at the minute works as we would want it to work. So I think, we again, we have to think, right, what are the alternative mechanisms? What are the alternative ways of securing compliance? Because that's what we want. We want compliance. So how do we get that? Well, I think the first thing that we can do, and I say we, I'm, I'm now talking about the, you know, the certain alliance of like-minded states. We can, we can share what we've got. We can share our technology. If you play with us, you can have the goodies in the, in the bag. You know, we will share more data with you. We've got access to all of this computing power. We'll share that with you. It doesn't just have to be space incentives. We've got a whole range of incentives we can offer you if you play and if you help share this data with us if you help work with us we can do that so i think that's kind of the route i would go down rather than punitive sanctions rather than if you do this you're going to lose x or y or z because there are ways of doing that 
but I think they're more appropriate for national regulation. So, for example, I've heard about uh, discussions about bonds being paid by companies for launching satellites. They do a performance bond, and if they don't deorbit in a certain time, they'll lose the bond. Well, okay, that works on a national level. Two questions about that. What happens if the company sort of needs the money up front and for operational purposes? And secondly, what happens, you know, if what happens to the money? Where does it go? Mm. Does the operational bond that's forfeit get paid into a debris removal company or does it just get subsumed by the by the Treasury Department? I bet I know the answer and I bet it's not the first one, <laughs> you know? So that's the thing. That's that's the compl- the compliance can work on the national level. And that assumes that all regulators are good regulators. And I think we know from sort of, you know, from the way that shipping has panned out. I don't like analogies and I don't like crossing, you know, going to maritime or going to aviation because I think they have lessons, but they're not the totality of the of the space domain. I, I, I often hear discussions about, well, why can't we have it like maritime law? And maritime law works for the sea. It doesn't work for the for, for space environment because the, the environments are, are too different. I think we need to build a bespoke environment. But I think there are there are issues that we can there are issues that we can see coming up in terms of you know flags of convenience and and forum shopping for regulators that we can kind of see emerging in the space environment that we need to put a stop to. So I think there's an element of national compliance that we can look at. I think there's an element as well of almost sort of groupthink here that we all do it, we all behave in a certain way and that drives behavior as well. Mm-hmm. So almost letting the, letting the norms emerge, letting the behavioral sort of trends develop in, in the way that we want them to, we'll just see naturally people do it. How many, you know, how many organizations have you been into where you've seen people do things? Why are we doing it? Well, we've always done it that way. So the, that can be a real powerful driver of behavior. Mm-hmm. If we can get the, we've always done it that way to be, well, we've always deorbited after 25 years and we, you know, we've got good post-mission disposals. And so I think there are behavioral nudges that we can introduce as well. There are country to country, you know, initiatives that we can do. And I think in the world that we're in, these are going to have to be almost bilateral, but a treaty from one country to another. And if you play the game and if you do this with us, then we'll share you this. We'll, do, we'll cooperate on this. And not necessarily, as I say, in space environment, but using the, all of the tools we've got in the bag to say, actually, we really like your biotech. Can we do some cooperation on that as well? So viewing space holistically, I think, helps. Viewing it as, as another environment in which we have to operate. Viewing space as a particularly delicate environment and a peculiar environment that needs that needs extra help we can't it, it's not just like the sea we can't just sail on it and you know if something sinks well it sinks and you know it'll go at the bottom and it'll become a, a natural coral reef or something if something goes bad up, up in space it's there and it has unpredictable consequences so we need to think about that as well so i think in terms of regulation the regulation we have needs to be broadly accepted. It needs to be empowering. It needs to have have it so that nations and operators feel like they've contributed to it. And I think it needs to be underpinned by positive enforcement and incentives rather than punitive actions and fines and you know stuff like that, which will never work. All right. Well, I know from my own municipal experience that if you get actors in the same room, they, they, they may have heard of each other and that, but they've rarely actually been together. And what happens is the pie grows bigger because they start <laughs> talking about, hey, I didn't know you had this asset and you didn't know I had this asset and we can use that and make a third thing out of it. Yeah. I've seen that happen enough times. So 
Hmm. But one question that does come up though, and uh, a part of this is solved by getting the actors involved in creating the regulations, right? That's, if it's your idea, you're gonna buy into yeah. it, right? But the question is one of trust. Uh, somebody who isn't in the crowd, and this could get very clickish, I think, very yeah. quickly, uh, approaches and says, hey, I, I wanna play with you guys, I wanna join, and they wanna get all the goodies, but then they turn out not to uh, follow the regulations, right? Yeah. Then what do you do? Now you're back to punitive action, right? What are you gonna remove access to the toys? Um, what well, choices do you have at that point? I think that's a legitimate question. And I think that's the point that we reach in space activity. What do you do when an actor just doesn't want to play? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it if a country is engaged in jamming? How do you, how do you deal with it if a country is orbiting a satellite in particular proximity to an asset that you don't want them to orbit in? You know, they, these are real problems that are happening now. And there are problems that I think have really complex and layered solutions because you're right. In an ideal world, we just get together, talk about it, offer various incentives and, and that would manage itself. We'd share data and that would manage itself. So where's the, where's the punitive action going to come from? Well, I think there's a couple of areas, but mainly I think that there is this notion in the Outer Space Treaty of due regard. You have to have due regard for space operations. Now, I'm wondering if that is the basis possibly of a cause of action in, in, in a domestic court for, you know, fault. That we have negligence here. You didn't pay due regard to the interests of other space operators. Now, how that works and how that trickles down, I'm not quite sure. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what litigation in space is going to look like. And I say litigation in space, I should really say litigation about space because we're not actually going to go up there and do it. <laughs> but I think that I think we're going to see something happen in space soon that is going to require court action. And then I think things are going to become much clearer. I'm working at the minute on a project called the Space Law Games. What we're trying to do is use a wargaming idea uh, to wargame a collision in space. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to hand it to a team of, of mooters, illegal mooters, and, and run a legal simulation as well and see how that works. Now, it's not going to provide all the answers, but it's at least going to show up some of the data holes, I think, that are going to be problematic because I think that's going to be the real issue. This is going to be the question of, well, what can we get as evidence? What's going to be probative in legal action? And what are we going to be able to show? Now, there may be lots that we can show. There may be areas that we can't show. And so we need to start thinking about that now, again, before the disaster happens. Because when it happens, things are going to happen very quickly. People are going to respond in crisis management mode. I mean, goodness knows what happens if something happens now with COVID interfering with all of our decision processes. So I think there's, I think there's a number of pressing things that we need to think about. We need to, and you've hit the nail on the head in terms of enforcement. How do we make actors who don't want to do something do them? There's a range. I don't think there's any one answer. I think there's tools from the various boxes that we've talked about, plus generally ensuring that the majority of the space environment is stable so that they really do stand out as egregious. But I think from there on in, we then have to see, well, you know, what other alternatives are available to us at the minute? Those alternatives aren't looking particularly sort of useful. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I'm all for let's get more tools out of the toolbox so that we can see them because uh, lots of paths from what you've been saying to me go to war. They, they end yes. up going to war and, and there's ways that you could get tricked into war doing this. Uh, 
manipulation and, and uh, what I call Godzilla tail thumping yeah. of, uh, you know, look at me, I'm doing this, you know, like, like China sending uh, some aircraft carrier through certain straits and uh, yeah. <laughs> saying, look, look, we're here, right? So, and then what do you do? And, and as you say, in these crisis moments, things can go bad very quickly. Uh, we've already seen Absolutely. that a couple of times. <laughs> Absolutely. And we see, it, we see it now with the behavior of, you know, uh, the, the Russians doing a, a noodle mm -hmm. anti-satellite test right. at a time when everybody's got their hands full. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that was deliberate and calculated yeah. because the Russians aren't going to use anti-satellite weapons like that anyway. They don't need that type of technology. They're not interested in that. They've got far more valuable assets that, you know, electronic countermeasures that they're going to be using. So how we respond to that type of behavior is going to be really interesting. I don't think, I think conflict rather than war is perhaps how I would phrase it. But, I, you know, I think you're right. I think space is becoming increasingly contested in that respect, mm -hmm. which is why I think it's even more important that we get some sort of coordination and as much data sharing as we can. Mm -hmm. Because the information that is out there could potentially you know, save lives and stop a space conflict. Mm -hmm. What we need is, is as much openness as we can. And I know that sounds, you know, utopian and, and I can, I can hear people at the minute sighing going typical academic left wing leaning, <laughs> blah, blah. But I actually think in terms of space activity, throwing the windows open and, and seeing the space environment really is the answer to everybody's prayers, to space operators who are, who've got valuable assets up there. I think this is as much a commercial argument as it is a, you know, an old hippie argument. I think this really is something that we, we, can, we can actually do a lot by making more information available. So that's kind of where I come back to. I, I, you know, I, I've talked about having multiple tools and yeah, I'm actually sounding like kind of like, if I can stretch the metaphor, a one club golfer, that you know, data sharing isn't going to solve everything, but it, I'll tell you what, it's going sure, to take us a heck of a lot of, yeah, it's going to take <laughs> us close to where we need to go because you're right. There are, there are countries and there are administrations who, you know, don't mean well. And for for all my naive optimism of the space game, there are there are you know hostile forces who would enjoy a little bit of space chaos, would enjoy a little bit of you know global chaos. So I think what we need to do is we need to minimise that fog. We need to get as much known about the orbital orbital environment and the orbital environments because I think each orbit has a different environmental consideration. So I think we need to know as much as we can about that. Once we start sharing the data, once we get the data from out of the military firewall as much as we can, um, and that's not my phrase, by the way, that's a phrase I've stolen from a great collaborator of mine called uh, Ralph Dinsley, Ralph, known to everyone as Dins. Mm -hmm. um, he is a, he's a space surveillance expert, and, and this is something we feel very strongly about, that we need to try and pull out as much of that tracking data as we can. Once we do that, then we'll have a better picture. Then we won't have misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. If it is bad behavior, we'll be able to see it for what it is. Right. Yeah. The cool thing is it's hard, really hard, maybe impossible to hide things in space. You can disguise Absolutely. maybe, but not hide. Um, and I like the data being open because really the question is, as you're moving towards maybe force and conflict as a resolution method, is your cause just? Right. What is the, what is the, the measure for that? Because you were there first? I, I don't know. Right. But at least with the data there being open, you have something objective to point at and say, here's what happened, not just a story. And Absolutely. That's really important. 
And it's going to be difficult enough to prove anything. You know, it's mm. going to be difficult enough to show what's happened. So we're going to need as much information as we can. We're going to need commercial providers of, of space tracking data. We're going to need government providers. We're going to need increasing, you know, as any, anybody who's got information about space should be able to put it into a central pot. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it. Right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company and that has gone on for a little while six months a year something like that and it is time as uh, COVID has made it to double down or get out those are pretty much the choices right it's time to invest further in a thing we already know which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or or stop just kill the project and so the good news is in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So... If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire? Or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. Because we hear a lot about data from space, you know, the downstream stuff. But what we need is data of space. We need, we need to know what's going on up there. And I think that will provide us with, if not, as I say, if not the tools to, to sort out space traffic management, sort out space, but it will at least provide us with the decision-making abilities 
to say, okay, this is what's happened here. This is what's going to happen here. Our assets not behaving in the way that we thought it was. That's not, that's nobody's fault. That is so, so we can't, you know, it, it, it's the type of asset that might perhaps attract interest, say. And if it starts malfunctioning, it's very easy to, 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 you know, start thinking, well, what's happening here? Is this some sort of attack when actually it might just be, you know, a tech failure. So I think the more information we have, the more we'll be able to make those, make those decisions and make those calls as to, right, this is hostile. and, And actually this isn't hostile. Okay. Fantastic. And I love the war gaming idea. Now that we've got an understanding of the why and a bit about the how, of, of how we're going to do this. Tell us, I want to hear more about your experience with the wargaming and with DINs. And I want, I want you to keep it inside the compliance and security guidelines, right? I don't want you sharing anything that, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about this, but I do want to hear about what you're doing to, to work on implementing environmental protection through space law. This is, um, this is one of the things it happened again through one of those chance meetings. There was a group of us in Edinburgh at the, um, at the global space traffic management workshop. And we kicked around this idea of, you know, should we war game something? How do we do that? What's it going to look like? And the, the first sort of decision that we, that we all made as collaborators was it's going to be open. There's going to be no sort of proprietary information. This is, we, you know, we are the, we are the curators of the games, if you like, rather than the keepers. We're, we're, we're making sure that we keep as much information in the open public domain as we possibly can. And what we're going to have is a series of, of, of war gaming events whereby we, have a series of points where decisions that can be made and decisions surrounding the orbital environment are made and that may or may not lead to some sort of incident and once the incident happens we're going to then hand it over to the law people to to, to myself and and a team of lawyers and we're going to say okay your team a your assets being destroyed you want money off team b team b prove that your asset didn't cause that damage and so we're effectively going to be saying okay prove it Let's see what we can prove with the commercially available data that's out there. Mm. And so well, that's, that's how we're going to do it. That's the ultimate end product, if you like. It's going to be a series of, of either papers or it's going to be a, you know, discussion documents whereby we, we share what we've done. We've got a PhD student who's working on it as well. Um, he's, he's busy pulling all the administration together and the methodology together to make sure that the methodology is a sound one, that it's, it doesn't just look like an arbitrary sort of exercise, that there is a sound intellectual academic base underpinning it. And then we, we, we use these twin methodological approaches to say, okay, this is what a collision in space will look like. Well, we kind of know what it will look like anyway, but these are the decisions that operators might have to make. These are the decisions that insurers might have to make. These are the decisions regulators might have to make. So we provide a, a list of these decisions that have to be then made. And then once we get the data that we think would be available, we, we get the data that, that the operators would say they'd be after, the data that the regulator will be after, the data that the insurers will be after. Now, ideally, that'll be the same data, but it might not be. There might be things that each one of them is looking for. And then we hand it to, 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 to our law team and say, great, you argue with them that they're to blame. Let's establish, let's see if we can establish fault. It might be that the ultimate sort of, the ultimate fruit of this game is that we know that we don't know enough to apportion blame. Mm-hmm. It might be that we don't have probative data. But it's one of the great things. We're work, like I say, we're working in, in 
in conjunction with a number of, of industry partners. Uh, Northern Space Security, that's Dins's company, that's the one that kind of the, the lead partner with Northumbria University. So we're working together on this, but we've got a whole range of collaborators um, that will, you know, will will be able to hopefully feed into this. I've got a I've got a link to the website that I can send you and, and mm-hmm. maybe you could you could attach to the yeah. to the podcast. So if anybody's interested, the more people that are interested, please we're reaching out to everybody. Come and have a look. It might be for you. It might not be for you. Even if, even if you're, you're a person, you look at it, you think, well, you know, I, I, this, this doesn't look very safe. Brilliant. Tell me what you think's wrong. Tell me how you would fix it. Tell me what you think, you know, intellectually or academically or methodologically we're doing that's flawed because the better our, 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 you know, our input mechanisms are, the better the output's going to be. So we've got a whole range of that. So we're trying to pull together this, this simulation of what happens. I call it a simulation, but I, I'm not using it in the scientific sense of, you know, what Marie Bajard does or what Hugh Lewis does. It's not that type of scientific simulation. It's more of the decision tree simulation that we're looking at. What are the decisions that are going to be made? Because ultimately it's going to be the humans on the ground that are going to make these decisions that are going to have consequences or otherwise. And then then we're going to hand it to the lawyers. The lawyers are then going to say, right, well, what decisions can we make? So we'll produce a package that hopefully will, will provide some guidance as to what really are the holes in the information that we need. Because again, I, I know I sound like a broken record and I do apologize and I apologize to your listeners as well, but it's that data. It's that, that, the, the, the amount of data that we've got that is going to let us down in some way. And I think that's what we need to to publicise. So that's sort of a brief look at the uh, at the space law games. Um, it's something I'm, I'm I'm heavily involved in, and it's something I'm very proud to be involved in. As I say, I don't intend it. We, you know, we're quite clear on this. This is not going to be the definitive word on liability in orbital operations. It's not going to be the definitive word in you know simulations. But it is going to give us an idea. And it once we have an idea, we can start shaping the conversation as to look. We need that. We need that. And we need that. And that's, I think, going to be the, because this is not going to be a, you know, we're not going to be able to show a collision, but hopefully when a collision happens, they'll be able to look and say, you know, I'm glad we had that. Mm-hmm. If one operator comes back and says, I'm really glad we had that information that we wouldn't have thought of before, then this whole thing's been worthwhile. Right. Well, this human factor, the decision-making is really, really important. Um, I look forward to the website. What's the time frame on getting to a completed product here? We're looking to do it fairly quickly. Um, we're looking to kind of get the, get the event simulated. We've got the tech people, the, the operators, we've got the insurers, we've got the regulators, we've got them all lined up. And we're hoping to do it, I mean, you know, COVID willing. The plan was to get it done within the next sort of three months. And then hand it over to the to the litigation team. So we've got some students, we've got some space lawyers, we've got some really experienced space lawyers who are going to you know sit in judgment on it and sit as a act as a judge for the moot. And then we're going to pass it up to the high chamber who are going to write their own judgment on it. Mm-hmm. So I would think we'll start seeing product about this time next year. It's the okay. it, it's the aim of the it's the aim of the game. I don't want to set too many ambitious targets, but I would like to, to start. You'll start seeing some outputs within the next twelve to twelve to sixteen months. Okay. Well, I would love to have you back on when it comes out to discuss it and, and talk about your findings and the experience Thank you so much. It. I think that, that would be, be amazing. That would be really, really lovely. And uh, I, you know, I, I rarely get invited back places, so <laughs> that would be fantastic. They probably just don't think to do it, but they should. <laughs> so let's just talk about in your capacity as a space law uh, and policy professor, 
uh, I am curious what things, like if you could matrix style, just download some ideas into <laughs> your students' heads, what would those be? It's really interesting because when I started teaching space law, I was one of the very first in the UK to do it. I think it was only, there was Frank Lyle up at Aberdeen who was doing it. There was maybe a couple of others, but the, you know, it was very much, you could point to two or three universities that were doing it. There wasn't many doing it. And when I went into, I remember going into the office of the head of law at Sunderland and saying, I, I, I want to teach space law. And the first thing she did was check my breath to see if I'd been drinking, you know. Uh, but then I, I told her about the dilemmas and I told her about, and she, fortunately, I had a very far thinking boss at that time. And she thought, well, okay, that, let's give it a go. So we gave it a go. And what we saw very quickly was that the regular legal skills that students were getting were invaluable to the space industry. Mm. Knowledge of contracts, knowledge of you know liabilities, knowledge of planning and property. All of the skills that we're doing were the skills that they wanted. So when I'm talking to students, the first thing I tell them, um, and, and it's something that I think is, I've, I've got a, a great student, she's, you know, she's working at the minute, she said, what should I do? What would be the best thing that I could do? get yourself a really good solid legal base because that's the that's what you bring to the party that's what you bring to the space game whenever i go and talk at at conferences i'm always careful and i should have said this i normally give my, my rider at the beginning actually that i am not an engineer i i think i'm conversationally literate and i can hold a sensible discussion with space engineers and with space operators and with you know with the scientists but i'm not trained that's not my methods and, it, and and i know how careful i have to be when i say things that might them either they might sound ludicrous and kill my credibility or they might be unproven and, and they might not be you know feasible because i see it all the time when non-lawyers talk about the law i see exactly the same traps that 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 i fall into in engineering disciplines and in science disciplines about that, that's all the simplifying things and i hear it myself when people when when people talk about the law and then they're not versed in the legal methodology so one of the things i advise my students get a good solid grounding in the law because that's where it's going that's where your skill set is really going to be valued in the in the industry that's what people want they want to be able to understand about intellectual property and data sharing and you know contract law and, and and other such things so kind of i came at it from a from an unusual position you already told about my phd that was in constitutional and comparative law but that's actually enabled me to look at the space treaties from a different angle most space lawyers um you talked about michael michael listener he he's a you know he's an international good solid international lawyer and so i come at it from a different point of view to him and i think when we the reason why we, we work so well together is because we've got very complementary views on the way in which law operates so i think that's the first thing i try to get into students that actually don't forget get the basics because it's the basics that are going to get you into the law into the space game sorry and the next thing is that they need to understand the space environment because it is unique it's not like any other environment that humans have operated in so understand that engage with the scientists engage with the engineers engage with the operators and engage with the business people one of the great things that i've found as a as a space sort of law academic is that i've been doing much more work with you know scientists and work, working with space weather people working with you know privilege to work with people like marie bajar who is genius you know and it's 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 a real insight to see their methods and their way of working and how my way of working can be informed by 
what they do and hopefully a little bit of what I have to offer can inform them. So don't be frightened of the, the next thing I tell my students. Don't be frightened of, of going into disciplines that you're not an expert in because it, it, it opens your eyes. As an intellectually satisfying experience, it's hard to beat. But actually to understand the customer and the client base that you're going to try and offer your skills to, it's absolutely imperative. So I, I know they sound kind of a bit mundane, but actually know the basics of your craft, know the tools of your trade, and then embrace the environment that you're going to, that you're looking to be operating on. Don't pose ridiculous solutions. And then thirdly, as I sort of alluded to, be humble enough to know that you're not an expert in the areas, in, in almost every area, and that you need to listen to other expertise. And, and, and listening to that and seeing, you know, seeing the great minds at work is a rare treat. Yes, it is a lot of fun, Chris. Uh, and I will echo your third point, especially because I experienced <laughs> it myself. I was afraid to enter the space field for years yeah. because uh, I thought, oh, I'm not a scientist. And I felt somehow I was going to be competing with these people in their fields of study that they'd <laughs> spent 8, 10, 12 years or more in, right? No, come in as yourself. And, and as you say, be humble. And, uh, you know, I didn't I don't think I said anything the first like six months I was in the industry. I didn't offer an opinion about anything. Anyway, I just yeah. sat and soaked up everything and I'm still doing it. And this, this show has allowed me to meet so many people like yourself in different fields that, uh, yeah, we only have one lifetime a piece and we can't possibly learn everything. So it is. And isn't it, is it wonderful? Yeah. Isn't it wonderful to do this? I mean, I, you know, mm -hmm. one of the great things I'm, I'm, there's, there's the, the saying of, you know, acknowledge your privilege. Well, how privileged am I mm -hmm. to be around and to be able to work in the space environment at this time, right now, where it really is going mainstream. It, it, right. There is that feeling that space is entering the mainstream. And, and I think that's kind of one of the pivoting right the way back to the beginning. I think that's one of the legal challenges we have. There's not just military space. There's not just commercial space. It's all playing around with each other and it's all playing around about, you know, 400 kilometers above our heads in a way that I never envisaged possible when I was a young guy watching John Young command the, the first Columbia mission, you know? It, it was really, it's it really moved into that multi-sectored environment where military sources are working and using transponder capacity on satellites and scientists are working with commercial companies and there's this huge crossover. So I think we're, we, we are in that stage of, of evolution and I think it's always difficult to try and regulate when things are still evolving. We will never get a fixed position in time and we'll never get a position where we're able to say, now we start regulating. We're very lucky in the sixties that we had that. We almost had that. There is going to be a person on the moon in 19 at the, you know, in the next five years, we need to sort this out now. We're never going to have that position again. And so I think actually that's why the Outer Space Treaty is such a brilliant, amazing piece of, 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 of legal work because it doesn't seek to impose law. What it does is a treaty of principles and those principles filter out throughout space activity. They create the norms that everyone's so desperately seeking for. So I think we need to sort of keep our eyes open, see what norms are emerging. There are, there are organizations like Confers, which I think are trying to say, well, how about this? And I think that's a great way to do it as well, to not be bound by the state and, and, not, and, and the traditional sort of state infrastructure, just to say, okay, we're a group of like-minded individuals. We've got some government people here. We've got some academics here. We've got some business people here. Why don't you try doing it this way? 
and seeing if it gets traction. So almost these unilateral declarations. And I think that's, a, that's another way we can try and push forward in, in making sense of what's happening in the orbital environment and trying to, trying to bring some order to it. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up, Chris. Uh, where can people go to connect with you if they want to find out more? And um, I will post that website uh, in the description. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, I'm on Twitter at Chris Newman 1972. Uh, I am available through the University of Northumbria website. Um, please reach out to me. I'm always eager for, for collaborators. I'm always eager to discuss any aspect of space law, space policy, space governance. The whole gamut is, is of interest to me. And, you know, if, if, I, if I can't help you, I probably know somebody who can. So really eager to, to, to connect with as many people as possible. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, if you just search Chris Newman Northumbria Space Law, you'll, you'll find me on there as well. Right on. All right. Christopher Newman, Professor of Space Law and Policy at Northumbria University. Thanks for joining me today. Jason, thanks so much for having me. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists. And so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.